What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, take a look at the following stories. OFAC focuses on screening errors. There is no single panacea for stopping corruption. Five top steps for data transfer after Schrems. What's the cost of noncompliance? Fahrenheit 451 compliance in German regulators. Coronavirus comeback planner. A compliance approach to excessive force and policing. Crisis preparedness and the BOD. And Tom looks at this week's top podcast. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, episode 217. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, along with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors himself for this week in FCPA, episode 217, for the week ending August 7th, 2020, the Fahrenheit 451, or for those truly in the know, the Ray Bradbury edition. So how does Fahrenheit 451 foretell noncompliance regulation in Germany? You'll have to listen to this podcast to find out because Jay and I are braving the COVID surge in South Texas and Southern California by self-isolating, staying safe, and wearing masks when we go outside. But once again, we are back to look at some of the week's top compliance articles and stories which caught our collective eye. Jay Rosen, what say you? Uh, I'm staying inside, I'm being safe, and I'm ready to talk compliance with my good friend in Houston, Texas, Tom Fox. So let's start off with uh, OFAC. Okay. Because uh, Mike Volkoff, who is an OFAC aficionado, uh, is in the middle of a three-part series, Jay, and it's around screening errors. Um, This is uh, Screening is much more prominent in... OFAC compliance than it is in ABC compliance, but it really has a lot of instructions for uh, both, obviously, OFAC trade sanction compliance, but uh, the ABC compliance professional as well. And so what companies are getting in trouble for is sanction screening errors, and uh, they are not incorporating updates to the SDN list, the SSI list, or they're failing to identify pertinent, uh, include for pertinent identifiers in their screen, screening, such as SWIFT business identifier codes for designated blocked or sanctioned institutions, uh, alternative spellings, uh, in, incorrectly inputted data, uh, my favorite, Cuba, instead of Cuba. Um, and uh, for those who are truly in the know, yo, Semites, where is that located? And is it on a sanctions list? So um, he goes in to talk about some of the cases where this popped up. He focused on American Express and Cobham. So uh, it's really, uh, I think, uh, obviously the OFAC compliance professional needs to check it out. But also it's a good lesson for the ABC compliance professional of uh, continual update, continual monitoring, and why you need to know who your third parties 
uh, are. Mike also takes a look at Apple and Amazon. And anytime you can take a look at those guys from a compliance perspective, it's always fun. Uh, so next up, we haven't visited with our friend Matthew Stevenson in a while. This uh, musing comes to him from the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And uh, today he's taking some time off from uh, writing uh, serious commentary. And he's going to talk about something that's frivolous, slightly even snarky at this point. But every sensible person would presumably agree that there is no panacea. And for those of you who don't know panacea, a single cure-all for corruption. But our ethics and compliance community appears to have developed perhaps a kind of reflexive semi-defensive verbal tick. And they say that transparency is not a panacea. Anti-corruption agencies are not a panacea. New technologies are not panaceas. Democracy is not a panacea. And privatization is not a panacea. Other things that literature has declared not a panacea for corruption include higher public sector salaries, international courts, more women in the public sector, EU membership, codes of corporate ethics, unexplained wealth orders. And since we all agree or we should agree that there is no panacea for corruption, we probably don't need to keep saying that any individual measure is not a panacea. And while this post is mainly meant as a gentle admonition with the finger pointed at Matthew himself as much as anyone else to be more mindful about trotting out tired cliches and banal statements of the obvious, he does think that there's something intriguing about how many of us working in this field frequently feel the subconscious compulsion to add what would seem to be the unnecessary caveat when discussing anti-corruption. The audience that we are speaking to is much more nuanced and sophisticated, and we should care more about managing the expectations of our audience, lest the failure of a proposed reform or to eradicate the corruption problem be treated as evidence that the reform didn't help. Then again, maybe there's no subject-specific explanation. Maybe it's just a bad habit. In any event, Matthew proposes that we retire the phrase, and if you're on a blog post on behalf of the anti-corruption community, then there is no panacea or corruption. We don't need to say it anymore. Just throw in an unexplained hyperlink to this post as soon as you introduce the anti-corruption measure you want to discuss. And without feeling the need to insert, quote, not a panacea qualification. And for that, Matthew says, thank you in advance. So can I get a yo Semites for you, Jay? Yo Semites. Yo Semites. Uh, I hope that's on your screening list. Jay, (laughs) next up we have an article from uh, Neil Hodge, my former colleague uh, at Compliance Week. Not that he's formerly with Compliance Week. I'm formerly with Compliance Week. But he takes a look at five tips for U.S.-EU data transfers post-SHRIMS 3. And I want to run through these because I think – uh, he puts out some good things uh, and ideas that I'm not sure non-data privacy professionals have thought about. So the first thing is uh, you need to have what are called uh, standard contractual terms or uh, SSCs uh, in place in your contracts allowing the uh, the transfer of data. Um, they They may be a short-term solution, but they're going to give you as much protection as is available right now. 
The second one, though, Jay, is companies should map their international data flows and existing transfer mechanisms. And once again, uh, many in the data privacy bar are aware of this, but I think compliance uh, professionals really need to consider this. Um, you know, Jay, we often say follow the money. Well, what about following the data? And maybe this could give you some compliance insights. Companies consider whether they should limit certain kinds of data from being transferred to third third countries. Companies should consider whether additional legal, technical, or practical safeguards can be applied to minimize regulated data transfer. And then contractual measures, meanwhile, uh, could include increased transparency and control over the company importing the data. So, uh, Jay, some of these are practical or rather straightforward, but if you think about them from the compliance perspective, I think they make a lot of sense. And, uh, of course, we link to the uh, Neil's article in the show notes. So it might be something that a compliance practitioner would find useful from the anti-bribery, anti-corruption perspective. Thanks, Tom. It wouldn't be a week in this FCPA if we didn't check in with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, at his radical compliance blog. And this week, Matt takes a look at Wells Fargo's staggering compliance costs. When Wells Fargo filed its latest quarterly report on Tuesday, you may have seen news that the new CEO, Charlie Scharf, wants to cut back spending on outside compliance consulting dramatically, spending that he described as beyond anything he's ever seen. This spending, of course, stems from the seemingly endless number of compliance failures Wells Fargo has endured since 2016. And as Matt read Scharf's comments, he wondered, well, just how much money has Wells Fargo been spending on outside compliance help? And according to the SEC, Wells Fargo has spent $11.8 billion, with a B, on outside consulting services alone since the start of 2017. Here's a handy little dandy chart that you can look at in the show notes. To be clear, not every dollar of that $11.8 billion was devoted to compliance, but a large portion of the amount definitely was. And the consulting, cern- consulting firms getting rich off this include PwC, McKinsey, and Oliver Weinman, just to name a few. And before you go, before you point to that downward trend line to say the situation is improving, rest assured that it is not. Matt also calculated spending on outside consultants as a percentage of Wells Fargo revenue and mapped out the percentage change over time, which is figure two. Now, at Q4 2019, coming into Q1 of this year, there's a huge pop. And it's simple. Revenue for Wells Fargo has shriveled like sautéed spinach within the last 12 months from $21.08 billion a year ago to $8.7 billion last quarter. Even as spending on outside consultants continues to go down from its 2017 highs, revenue has been falling even faster. By last quarter, spending on outside consultants consumed 9.16, so almost 10% of revenue. In an article in the Financial Times, there's a fuller picture that gets painted to the dismay of Wells Fargo. First, the costs alone are sky high. And second, so much spending on outside consultants has led to internal resentment among employees who are staring at layoffs and budget cuts to keep Wells Fargo on operational footing. Plus, the more you spend with outside consulting firms to build up your program, the less experience internal employees will have at running said program. So here's the big numbers here. 
Uh, even as we're all agog at $11.8 billion in spending on outside consultants, remember that's not even the full picture of Wells Fargo's compli- compliance woes. Along the way, Wells Fargo has paid the following, $3 billion to the Justice Department and the SEC, $185 million to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, $35 million to the SEC in February 2020, for some recidivist practices, $500 million to the Office of the Controller of the Currency. The list goes on, but one watchdog group has calculated that Wells Fargo has spent $8.98 billion in penalties since 2016 and $21.14 billion since 2000. On top of that are the internal costs for Wells Fargo's compliance recovery, new hires for compliance function, Man hours pulled from other parts of the bank to focus on compliance needs. So how much does it all total? Well, we don't really know, but we can safely say that Wells Fargo has spent more than $20 billion with a B on compliance-related costs. Whatever those costs may be to your board, CEO, and senior team, devote much more energy on getting culture of compliance right the first time. It ain't going to cost $20 billion to do this. So as they used to say in the old mining key commercial, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Or you can just keep paying me and then you can pay me some more uh, and then uh, you can get uh, reputational damage because you lied, stole and cheated and keep paying me. So uh, maybe there's a lesson in there somewhere, Jay. You, could you go out on a limb and, and give me an opinion as to whether there's a lesson there? Uh, I think that's one of those questions that I'm not supposed to answer. It's rhetorical, right? <laughs> uh, you're neither authorized to admit or deny that there could be such an answer to a question if it existed. So, Jay, you know who Ray Bradbury was? I do. Science, you- science fiction author from the 50s and the 60s. Did you read Fahrenheit 451 in high school? I have to admit that that was not signed reading for me. I was more of an Isaac Asimov kind of guy, iRobot, but I am familiar with the plot. All right. So did you know that Ray Bradbury in Fahrenheit 451 foretold a German regulatory scheme which allowed Wirecard to defraud literally every stakeholder across the globe? I did not know that. And... Do you know why that's so? Why is that so, Tom? Well, Rosemary Lark told us why, and she told it to us in a blog post on the FCPA blog this week, which is entitled, Germany Has a Compliance and Enforcement Problem. That problem is that German regulators uh, view their job as not to regulate the companies in their industries, It is to uh, bring criminal cases on people who question those companies. So, much like the firemen in Fahrenheit 451, whose job was to burn books, not save them, the German regulators try to burn, literally, with criminal indictments, anyone who raises questions about accounting frauds of German corporations. This um, anomaly, and it would seem to be an anomaly, in the world really turns, I think, on uh, the way Germany views itself and it views its industries as not only so much homegrown, but uh, home uh, uh, eth- ethnically, uh, no, that's not right, um, 
uh, Germanly centered and that the shareholder does not come first. In the German system, uh, there is a bank-centered approach to governments, which has led to an undeveloped, underdeveloped securities market and weak minority shareholders. So when you start off with that and then you have uh, opaqueness, the point of blindness, uh, you see, you begin to see why the German regulators are really the firemen who are there to burn the books. So I found it really interesting uh, and a great article by uh, Ms. Lark. We have not uh, cited her, her before, I believe. She's a longtime financial crimes compliance consultant um, in the D.C. area. So uh, Fahrenheit 451, this is the book for you, and it explains Wirecard. Gotcha. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we check in with our friends at Navix Global, the Risk and Compliance Matters blog. And today we're taking a look at a coronavirus comeback planner for the second half of 2020. The scope of business risk in the new world of work during or after the COVID pandemic is still vast and growing. The new landscape is diverse, monitoring employees' conduct and productivity while working from home, managing employee health data like that collected from temperature checks, and renegotiating sales commission structures to mitigate fraud, planning for supply chain disruption. Risk comes from everywhere in today's business environment. <clears throat> Yet despite the increased scope of risk, FCPA enforcement has not lessened during the pandemic. Neither has the DOJ, as the updated evaluation of corporate compliance programs now specifically states that the effectiveness of your program will be viewed both at the time of the offense and at the time of the charging decision. Business partners, too, require the same level of third-party due diligence. Compliance professionals are under a lot of pressure to account for increased scope of risk due to operating business pandemic. And with Navix's new coronavirus comeback kit, they offer a framework to block and tackle risk during return to risk pl to work planning. Most RNC professionals are concerned with risks that roll up to three main categories. And we've got a nice diagram that you can look at when you go to the show notes. They're managing remote workforce. They're managing COVID risks. And then there's managing increased employee conduct risks. Increase, increasing the awareness of our policies and regulations across the organization was the number one priority of RNC professionals who responded to the recent 2020 Definitive Risk and Compliance Benchmark Report. Policy management is part of managing a remote workforce, an area of risk and concern for all companies with employees working from home. Most companies have a BYOD, bring your own device policy, that limits the type of privileged company information employees can access on personal devices. Policies and procedure distribution, attestations, and tracking have become essential activities for organizations due to the urgency and nuances of pandemic communications. Evolving shelter-in-place orders and work-from-home expectations requires increasingly fluid communications access across your whole organization. If you're responsible for keeping policies and procedure documentation up to date, here are a few immediate actions that can help prepare your company to return to work. Ensure employees read and understand relevant policies and procedures. Automatically route new and updated policies and procedures to your employees. Enable remote access to important policies and procedures. 
make relevant policies and procedures easily accessible from any location and any device. Stay audit ready. Implement a reporting system that tracks policy changes. Policy management is just one area where compliance professionals are being asked to manage a complex and growing scope of responsibility. To learn how technology is helping RNC professionals block and tackle cybersecurity, third risk management, remote investigation, and other risks resuming business post-pandemic, please look to the show notes, and there's a link to go and get the Corona Comeback Kit. George Floyd really not only was a horrible and tragic event, but it's led a lot of discussions around how can we begin to address the crisis of excessive police force. Uh, That was, of course, the most recent and most public, but this is not a new problem. Um, We saw it in Washington, D.C. We saw it certainly in Portland with the federal police uh, or the federal whatever they were there. Um, Gestapo. Yo, Semites. Uh, Indeed, I heard today there's actually a new country that's high on the risk scale. It's called Thailand. (laughs) So for those uh, who wonder where that country is, you have to consult Donald Trump. But... Two individuals, Joe Murphy, Joseph Murphy, and Emil Amaskella, wrote a very interesting article, which is a compliance approach to dealing with excessive police force. And I must say that uh, I had this idea a few weeks ago, but I never got off my tush to write the article. So kudos to Emil and Joseph for actually writing it. And Jay, they take the basic steps of an ethics compliance program, expand them a little bit into 15 steps, but uh, lay out the framework to not only address uh, excessive police force issues, but uh, to try to manage that risk going forward. They begin with a quote from Federalist 51, and anytime you can quote Federalist 51, in my book, you're ahead of the game. They say, quote, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Well, that's a perfect uh, setup for their 15 steps for an ethics and compliance program. It's, of course, based on the federal sentencing guidelines. And uh, I'm just going to go through them because they'll be near and dear to the heart of every compliance officer. High-level oversight, number one. Number two, uh, chief ethics and compliance officer. Number three, clear policies, codes, and internal controls. Four, careful delegation of responsibility. Five, uses of incentives and discipline to promote the program. Six is reporting. Seven, prompt, thorough, and independent investigation of complaints. Eight, robust training and communications. Nine, monitoring subordinates' actions through appropriate supervision and other tools. In the FCPA world, that's third parties. Ten, auditing police actions to identify trends, both good and problematic. 11, that's continuous monitoring. 11, periodic evaluation of the program's effectiveness. I think you guys at Affiliated Monitors could write the book on that one, Jay. 12, periodic risk assessments, learning from the experiences of comparable organizations across the country. 13, um, keeping up with other compliance and ethics programs' best practices. 14, responding appropriately to violations. And then 15, no doubt written with the compliance evangelist in mind, document, document, document the program. So I ran through that pretty quickly, but, J, 
Jay, there's nothing in any of those steps which would be a surprise to a compliance professional, and it really lays out a way uh, to think through how you could address this issue, and I'm going to even throw it out further. I think it's a way for uh, affiliated monitors maybe to step in and use its uh, uh, monitoring skills in an oversight capacity to help address this issue. So perhaps I could have one of your colleagues uh, talk about that on a podcast one day. Uh, it seems like we usually check in at least once a week with Corporate Compliance Insights blog. And the future of crisis management has already arrived, and disruptive risks won't wait for boards and management teams to catch up. Management consultant Joy Dip Day opines on the importance of preparedness and agility in responding to crisis. The current pandem- pandemic, which has challenged business like never before, has also got them thinking about the quality of their board of directors. Although the process of examining value add by independent directors has started sometime earlier, it is only now since the pandemic that it is being accelerated. It is understood that in some cases, with valuable suggestions not always forthcoming from the board members, that CEOs have been all at sea in these unprecedented times. The pandemic has taken board members of several companies by surprise, leading to the lack of appropriate guidance from the board to the CEO. Companies are increasingly looking to bring on board members who can be advisors, as few board members have experience dealing with a COVID-like pandemic. A Fortune 500 CEO has said an independent director must be willing to challenge managerial proposals and ask the critical questions that nobody else is asking. So what's ahead for the board in the coming months? Within the next three to six months, we can expect boards to begin including far more professionals who can help the organization grow in these times. There is also an increasing realization that investors are looking at companies with better corporate governance, and independent directors are expected to be the watchdogs to ensure good practices by the board. For many, it's not it's not knowing how to anticipate and take advantage of any disruptions to the status quo. In most cases, companies lack the internal talent to make what feels like seismic shifts in focus. One frequently overlooked means of preparing for the future is through a high-performing, strategically focused board. However, there are boards that effectively demonstrate their depth of knowledge and experience. The value of preparing for a crisis. Ideally, boards should dedicate a block of time each year to better understand and prepare for major threats to their business. A recent published report, Adaptive Governance, Board Oversight of Disruptive Risk by the National Association of Corporate Directors, NACD, suggests that whether driven by unforeseen circumstances or problems hiding in plain sight, disruptive risks won't wait for boards and managements to catch up. In an NACD poll of public and private company directors, more than 6 in 10 respondents said they view disruptive risks as much more important to the business environment today than compared to five years ago. The report made the following recommendations to help boards strengthen their oversight. Improve visibility of disruptive risks in the boardroom. Stay informed about company and industry developments. Conduct deep dives with management on disruptive risks and implications for organizational strategy. And above all, this leads to becoming crisis resilient. Any crisis event can be divided into two phases, the event itself and the response to it. 
Most stakeholders, customers, investors, employees, are sympathetic when a company is hit by a hard-to-avoid disaster. Crises don't discriminate, and they can threaten the existence of an organization if not contained in due time. Only those organizations that regularly test their crisis response plan and train themselves on it will become crisis resilient in the future. Today, many business leaders are of the opinion that crises are becoming more intense as the world becomes more dynamic. In the near future, crises will be more complex and harder than ever to contain. Every organization will need a crisis leader. Crisis management will require a board-tested response plan. Cultural expectations will converge. Crisis preparedness will be more than an opportunity. It will be a competitive advantage. Organizations that are adept at crisis management take a systematic approach to mitigating potential crises and management and managing those that do arise with a focus on both persevering and enhancing business value. With a number of crises on the rise, it's crucial for organizations to be ready to respond with agility and multiple scenarios that have been tested multiple times at the field level. Equally vital is understanding that many crises can be avoided in the first place, allowing organizations to focus on core business performance and growth. Perhaps most important of all, the dramatic difference in outcomes when senior management and board members are involved demonstrate the urgent need for organizational leaders to proactively plan and prepare for crisis. There is a famous saying, pressure makes diamonds. It can also make a puddle of mush. The difference is how well we adapt to crisis leadership versus leadership in good times. So, Jay, we have a new guest for this month's series on the Compliance Life, Louis Sapperman, uh, CCO at uh, Panasonic North America, longtime friend of this podcast and ourselves, former CCO at Dun and Bradstreet. He's, um, in uh, part one, we take a look at Lewis's personal and professional journey into compliance. Uh, over the next four weeks, we'll have additional uh, podcasts with Lewis. So if you're interested at all in the CCO chair, how to get there, where it may take you. This is the podcast series for you. Lewis, as with all CCOs I've interviewed, has a unique story, and it literally starts with waiting tables. So uh, check out Lewis's uh, podcast, part one. Of course, we've linked to it in the show notes. So it's another week of pandemic, and it's another opportunity for us to explore compliance and coronavirus. Who were the three folks you interviewed this week, Tom? So, Jay, we had an interesting plethora, or a trilogy, I should say. Maurice Gilbert, uh, well-known um, in the compliance space for his executive search firm, Concilium, discusses the compliance hiring scene during COVID-19. Uh, Andy Goldstrom, someone I met through um, my membership in the National Speakers Association on business sustainability. He's an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur coach and consultant, and he brings entrepreneur concepts uh, to uh, the compliance professional. And finally, one of my favorite people of all time, Laura Petrolino, who uh, wrote a blog post uh, in the Spin Sucks blog about storytelling. She works in communications and marketing, and she really explains the power of storytelling and, Jay, how we and our compliance brethren can use it not only in compliance communications but also compliance training. So check out uh, those three podcasts. Uh, I began a new month on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, this month looking at the board, the role of the board of directors in compliance. 
uh, a tip of the hat to affiliated monitors for sponsoring this month. On Monday, I looked at legal obligations of the board. Tuesday, the prudent discharge of board obligations. Wednesday, uh, board committees. Thursday, uh, the OIG guidance for boards of directors. And Friday, compliance expertise on the boards. Uh, as I said, this month is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. and We have our own um, iTunes channel, so check us out. Great. And uh, at this part in the podcast, we talk about any upcoming uh, events. Tom, what's on the horizon for the Ethics and Compliance virtual community? So, Jay, one of the top conferences literally every year is now Converge, Conversance Converge. And Converge 20 has, of course, moved to a virtual platform, and uh, registration is now open. Um, This is going to be uh, one of the very best conferences. I'm working with Conversant to help get uh, some of the speakers lined up. We're going to be doing a teaser with podcasts this year on it. Um, The event itself will be October 6th through 8th, once again, virtually. Here's the best part, Jay. It's no charge to attend. So... If you're interested in uh, anything compliance, uh, we're going to have a lot on diversity and how you can build out a compliance program to lead that discussion in your organization. This is going to be the virtual event for you. Once again, uh, October 6th through 8th, virtual conference. Jay and I are going to be there. Uh, Check it out. I've linked to the registration and uh, information uh, with uh, the current agenda. So uh, please sign up for Converge 20. Good stuff, Tom. We're looking forward to it. And as you said before, the price is definitely right. Uh, On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, Episode 217, for the week ending August 7th, 2020, the Fahrenheit 451 edition Uh, We hope that you are safe and your loved ones are healthy. We appreciate you spending time with us this weekend, and we look forward to checking in with you next week to tell you all about the week in FCPA for Episode 218 at the end of next week. Thanks and take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We've also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message if you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.